will be in 2 Peter 3, if you want to turn there. Now, when I was a kid, I loved playing with Legos. Hours and hours I could spend building things, making little worlds, making little people, making these lives of the Lego peoples. How they would act things out. I would play until my parents told me it was time to pick up the toys or else to go somewhere or whether to go to bed. And when you build a Lego house, when you build something out of Legos, part of the fun is being able to, of course, take it apart at the end. <clears throat> Countless ships, airplanes, little houses, all these things get dismantled at the end of my playtime. Now, it is also a picture of the coming of our Lord as the judgment that God will bring on the earth. Each little Lego man pilot or captain assembled his best crew. They had their best weapons, their best little hats, all the best pieces that they could have for their houses or ships. Yet eventually, all these things were separated, taken apart and dismantled. And all the work that each of these little Lego men had put into each ship came to nothing, as if it never happened. And they all went back into the bin that I carried my Legos in. And we will look today at the future dismantling of this world and the universe as we know it. We will look at the works that we've done, the works of human achievement as they come to nothing. And we will look at the implications of this for our lives today. So if you would join with me in 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of God. This day here has three important facets, important faces that we should look at. The first is it's coming. It's like a thief. The second is it's collateral, the damage and destruction of creation and the works of mankind. And then the third is it's conclusion. This, of course, is the ethical implication of how we are to live our lives in light of these first two points. So the coming. This is like a thief, Peter writes. It's like a swift, unannounced, and intentional arrival of a person. The effects on a person who is robbed, either while sleeping or while awake, is intense. Some feel the loss of security, not being safe ever again. Some worry if there will be more thieves, more opportunities to get their things taken. In fact, maybe their lives on the line from these thieves. And Peter here is drawing from a reference which Christ says in the Gospels, but also, I think, more in Paul. In Thessalonians 2, or in Thessalonians 5, verses 1 to 3, Paul says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. I think it is important to know that Peter is not talking here about a secret event in the church's life, something that people won't know about. When Christ comes, this isn't when Christ comes like a thief, takes something and then leaves quietly, and nobody really notices. The point of what he's saying here, like a thief, is talking about the suddenness of the event not necessarily describing how the event will occur. Yet, his coming is like a thief, and it will be known to all. 
There is even mention, in fact, of a loud noise, as we continue on in our verse, that will accompany his coming. Like a thief waits for the perfect moment, like a thief studies the home to know when it's best to come and go, when it's best to accomplish his purpose. So God is essentially casing the joint in reference to earth, in reference to the world. He is watching and waiting for the time that he has picked to come. It will be sudden and fierce when it does happen. Now, when we start talking about end times things, we can pull out our charts of long understandings of how we time things, when things will happen, when this will happen, how it will happen. We can begin to try and figure out the years using numerical uh, things that will tell us, oh, it's been a thousand years, it's been seven thousand years. We're looking for this number times this number times this number. In fact, there's some preachers that will give you 15 reasons why he's coming back in 2015. I don't think that's the purpose of this. And I don't think that's where Peter would have us go. People have studied end times and eschatology, these things, and spent a lot of time trying to figure out the exact day, trying to figure out the time when Christ will return. But I wanted this week to look at our specific text, to look at Peter, what he's specifically talking about, and understand from his writings what we can know about the purpose of this day. Peter knew he was going to die before Christ came. We've looked at that verse multiple times this summer. He knew that he wasn't going to be around for that day, but he still considered that day to be soon. Many references in the Gospels and other passages of the Bible leave us with the undeniable fact that we will not know exactly when the day is coming, but that it is coming soon. Matthew writes that Christ is coming at an hour that we don't know. We will not know exactly when. James says the coming is at hand. John writes in Revelation that Jesus says he is coming soon. But there are also verses which tell us that there will be prophecies fulfilled. There will be things that have to happen before Christ comes. Mark 13 has many of these, such as the gospel must first be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come, in verse 10. False teachers must come, in verse 22. Signs in the heavens must occur, in Mark 10, 24-25. There's also prophecies about Israel coming to salvation, from Romans 11. When we look at the idea that Christ is coming soon, and then we understand that there's prophecies that must be fulfilled, we have to begin to bring these together and say, which one of those is more true? Which one of those is happening? Wayne Grudem gives a good teaching on how to deal with both the imminence of Christ's return, which is to say that any day now, today, tomorrow, this week, he's coming back, and also the signs preceding his return and his coming. He says that while it is unlikely that all these signs have been fulfilled, it is possible that they have been. In regards to this, Paul says people around the world being saved in regards to every person hearing the gospel. Paul says in Colossians 1.23, the gospel which you heard, which has been preached to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Peter already tells of the increased tribulation and the presence of false teachers. These signs in the heaven as well might be fulfilled within a couple hours of Christ's return. So, because of these reasons, I think it's important that we understand that 
it is unlikely, it is unlikely but possible that all the signs have been fulfilled that would lead up to Christ's return. We are to live in expectation that he is able to come at any moment. And because of that, we are to prepare for that event, even if we feel like it's unlikely. And you say, well, this might be crazy, but I think every time that you get into a car, you do the same thing. When you put on a seatbelt, you're preparing for an event that you consider unlikely, but possible. That event would be getting into a car wreck. So you prepare yourself. And there is much more to read on this subject. There's a lot to read when we talk about end times. It's one of those passages and ideas that we've come to in Peter, which I don't have enough time to fully delve in and fully go over. So like most of our other topics, there's plenty written on this subject. If you would like some of that, feel free to email me or let me know, and I can point you in directions of some things that you can look for. So we will continue with Peter's description of this day in verse 10. And I believe that verse 10 and the next few verses are packed with instruction for us to learn from, not just for his readers or the people in his day, but for us as well. So I repeat, the coming is like a thief. Its collateral is the destruction of creation and the works of mankind, and its conclusion is the ethical implication of how we are to live. So on to our second point of the collateral, the damage. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and the earthly works will be exposed. So, the heavens here refers to this layer of the outer expanse of creation. When we look up at the stars and we see these things that say, oh, the heavens declare. There's all this expanse there. It will pass away. Another translation for this term, pass away, is it will be rolled up like a scroll. And yet, I think if we would bring it to something that's more familiar with us, if any of you remember being in school, you remember projection screens. You remember the teacher would go to project something, they would have a screen here, and they would pull it down and latch it. And then they would project something on the screen, whatever they were teaching for that day. They would go through it, and they would display it for everybody in the classroom to see, to learn, to understand. And at the end of the classroom, they would pull it down, they would release it, and the loaded springs would roll it back up and snap it into place, usually letting you know that class is over, if not scaring you a little bit. And I want to say that what Peter means here when the heavens roll away, when the heavens pass away, that this is the moment when God is telling us that the time for learning, the time for gazing into what he has projected for the world to know him, namely the heavens, the universe, all these things, everybody can look at them. The time for them to look at those things and learn from God and come to him is ending. He's rolling the heavens back like a teacher saying class is over. He's teaching through his creation. Since that time is passing, he rolls them up. He finishes it as he does something that is pretty interesting. God is going to gaze on people. He's going to bring his his piercing gaze closer to the earth. He's going to look at not just the heavens, not just the earth as an orb, but he's going to look at the things that each and every person has done. At the end of Revelations 20.11, God is sitting on his throne, ready to judge mankind once and for all. And it says, even the heavens and the earth flee away from his presence. He's drawing the shades back, 
bringing himself forward, bringing class time to an end. He's revealing himself fully and wonderfully to all mankind as he brings himself closer to us. This rushing noise that accompanies this moment is a word that sounds like how it's pronounced. We call them automatopias, like the word buzz. It's a word that sounds like how it's pronounced. It came, it, can, it came to be known as the whizzing of an arrow by your ear. It came to be known as the rushing of waters in a river, or perhaps the crackling of a fire. And as Peter uses this word, I can imagine him and the many nights that he spent listening to Christ, setting up a fire for them to cook food, setting up a fire for them to camp out and live and talk and understand what Christ is teaching. As Christ teaches around the campfire and the light comes off his face. Peter hears the crackling of the fire. Just as Christ is explaining these things, and he uses this word, as he gazed into Christ's face, he started to understand these things. And something that I love that we've done looking through these letters of Peter is to show just how personal and just how important his life in the Gospels is to his writing. That this is a man who has learned these things from Christ. Now, he moves on to the burning of the celestial bodies. Interpreters are not exactly clear on what the words mean here. Our ESV translation has it as celestial bodies, giving the idea of either angelic beings in the sky or the sun, the moon, and the stars. Other versions will use the words elements, as this is what the word meant in the time of Peter's writing. I don't think that Peter's talking about angels being burned up here. Because we know from other passages in Peter that angels are eternal and they will receive an eternal punishment. So I don't believe that they'll be dissolved or simply disperse. And it is possible that it could mean the sun and the stars as we see them and as we know them, but I think that limits the intention and extent of this passage. The word, as Peter in his time would have came to understand it, to mean, refers to the essential building blocks of, of all creation. Philosophers during that time saw these as the four elements of the world. Yet, I think Peter is pointing to the dissolving of all materials in creation. Everything around us, the chair you're sitting on, the building that we use, the ground that it's built on. I doubt that he is able to articulate exactly oxygen, hydrogen, and all the periodic elements that we understand them, but I think his point is still the same, that these things will be dissolved and burned up. This destruction is massive in its scale. The sun and moon, as part of creation, will be destroyed simply by having their composition dissolve, burn up. We drink water every day, hopefully every day, Otherwise, you're in a lot of trouble. But hopefully, every day you drink water. Yet, if the very molecules of what you're drinking were shifted or changed slightly, that would be deadly to us, like poison. Even the air we breathe in wrong percentages has the deadly potential to cause massive damage if the molecules are rearranged. The splitting of the atom produced one of the deadliest weapons that man has ever made. Yet God holds back this power in trillions upon trillions of atoms in the universe, all spanning throughout his creation. Colossians tells us that Christ holds the universe together. 
And Peter also tells us that in his word, he has the power and the ability to end it all and separate them. Part of this final destruction is the earth and its works will be exposed. All the deeds done, the tallest building to the most far-flung park bench. I wouldn't limit this point either, or I wouldn't limit this point to things which man has made, like the buildings. But I would also say that at this point, Peter's telling us that humankind itself will stand exposed to God. From the most public speech made by the politicians to the most secretive white lie that we've made. God will peel back space like a projector screen, bring his piercing gaze closer. He will dissolve all the materials that man has prized and worshipped and bring his gaze closer to our hearts, to our motives, to our intentions. Our sermon today is destruction and disclosure. Here we move on to God disclosing all those things that men and women that all of us have hidden in our hearts. The dead, the great and the small, have all their deeds laid bare. As Revelations 20, 11 to 13 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The day's coming is like a thief. Its collateral is destruction of creation and the works of mankind. Its conclusion, what we're looking for, is the ethical implication of how we are to live in light of this. So, what people are we to be? Join me in verse 11, please. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are to be holy in our behavior, and godly in our conduct. But what exactly does it mean to hasten the day? I think a core belief in Peter's view and Peter's understanding of Christ's return has to do with those who haven't repented. He wants them to come to the Lord. We looked last week at some verses that talk about this. In fact, listen to him from Acts 3.19. He says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that, may he, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. So if we follow the logic of Peter's understanding, we can see this even more. From verse 9, we know that God is patient, meaning his patience to be salvation. He does not wish that any would perish, but that they would come to the truth of the gospel. And then if we draw from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, we can see that God uses us as his mouthpiece. He uses us as his words to those who are not saved. We are his method of bringing people to salvation. 
and if we are to be godly in our conduct, in our thinking. We are to do the work of evangelizing, proclaiming Christ to those who have not repented, those who don't know him. And in so doing, in a way, we are hastening the day. We wait for this day as it is a fulfillment of promises which we have been given, the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. And this is also the kingdom of righteousness that we looked at from the hero's journey in Second Peter 1 a couple weeks ago. All creation is groaning, waiting for this day to be in that place where righteousness dwells, where righteousness resides. Peter's implications are not just in evangelism for hastening the day. It's not just in telling those around us about Christ. But if we are looking to this eternal place, the place that won't be burned up, the place that will be made new, this is where righteousness dwells and resides. And if we're looking for these, we're going to do something like, if you move to another country, you learn their language, right? If you get into a relationship and you think about getting married, you try and learn about that person. You try to learn about what that life will be like. If you're going to a new school, you try to learn about what that school's like. If you're having a child, you try to learn how to be a father, how to be a mother. Now, if righteousness is our future, would we not make every effort that we can to be righteous? Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This effort that Peter's talking about is not for earning our salvation as a result of simply trying harder. Effort in the Christian life comes from a place of salvation, not for a place of salvation. Hebrews 4 reminds its readers that they, like us today, are waiting for the rest of God that comes with his return. If you'd like to join me in reading that, Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of, his, of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should, should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, In this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest 
has also rested from his works as God did from his. And here's the important verse, the pertinent one for us. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We are to strive to enter this rest. Be eager and proactive in being spotless and blameless. We've looked at these two words before, and they, they come from the sacrificial system, where no doubt Peter was familiar with it. Nothing less than spotless and unblemished is acceptable for a sacrifice. But if we are to look at our own lives, it wouldn't take much to see that this is unattainable for us. And Peter himself knows that the flesh is weak, even if the spirit is willing. He knows the requirements for being spotless and knows that no man can simply follow the commands of God and be clean by his own merit. He knows that it is the sanctifying work of Christ, 1 Peter 1, verse 2. He knows that it's to be redeemed by Christ's precious blood, 1 Peter 1, 19. He knows being born again to righteousness and dying to sin, from 1 Peter 2, 25. He knows that God has given us all things that we need for this goal. 2 Peter 1, 3. Our blemishes and spots have been taken by Christ. And when God sees us, we are not labeled by our sins, by the spots and blemishes. We are labeled by Christ's righteousness. It's with us at that very moment that everything will be revealed. When the sky rolls back and all our deeds are made known from this book, God instead looks at the Christ. He looks at Christ, pronounces his righteousness for us. Those who are not saved stand naked and condemned, revealed, laid bare, while we stand pronounced righteous only by the covering of Christ over us. Our response to this future event, and I think where Peter's trying to go, is that it should be peace. We should feel peace. Most teachings on end times don't really do this. In fact, I think a major flaw is found in this, that teaching on end times and eschatology must point itself in the direction of future peace, even peace for today for those of us who are in Christ, those, who are, those of us who are with Christ. We are to have peace at his return. As all the works of mankind are laid bare before God, we are to know that nothing we have done in our lives is hidden from his sight. It's not like the heavens kind of shroud us and allow us to hide things, and then he takes them apart and then can see us now. He sees us now as we are. There are no sins we can commit that simply go unnoticed. We can hide these things from those around us, those in this very room. But not so with God. We can have peace knowing that Christ took those sins, that Christ took those spots. When we stand before God, we do not depend on our good works. In fact, we don't really even depend on our job evangelizing people. In fact, we don't even depend on faithful tithing. All these good things, those aren't what get us into that place of righteousness. We stand covered by the perfect life lived by Christ. 
and by his death in our place, paying the wages of our sins on the cross. I will not, in that future moment, look to my deeds, look to my works, look to the things that I've done, in hopes that my striving to enter this rest was enough to get me there. I will stand behind Christ, depending on him completely to cover me by his blood. Now, if, however, you don't feel peace at his return, if this teaching or the ideas of eschatology and his return in books like Revelation scare you, if you feel fear about your place with Christ and about your eternal destination, put your trust in him. Place your confidence on his righteousness. Because this is something, as Peter has said, this is something that he will supply richly for you. If you feel like he would return tomorrow and all these things from this chapter would find you standing alone, covered in spots, covered in blemishes. Come to Christ and allow him to wash you. As verse 15 tells us, the patience that he has is to be counted as salvation. His waiting is to be counted not just to us, but to all as salvation. As God is waiting for each of the elect to come to him. Let this day be the day where he speaks to your heart through the words of Peter and hopefully even through my words as the writings of Peter are here to guide not just Christians but unbelievers and they're to guide us in the way of God, in the way of Christ. Now, as we as believers come to approach this table, approach the communion table, let this not be just in memory of that sacrifice, in memory of that blood that has covered us, those things which Christ has done for us by his body and his blood. But let it be a reminder of the communion that we stand to have with him in eternity, one day sharing these things bodily in a new place, in the new heavens and the new earth, at peace, unblemished, spotless in righteousness, living in a place where righteousness dwells. The fellowship of being with God in a sinless state, that's great for us. So let us come to this table today seeking to grow closer with God in a spirit of thankfulness, taking the teaching of Peter found in these verses, taking the ideas of what is going to come from end times, anticipating his return, let us take all these things, combine them, and let us feel overwhelmed with a sense of peace, knowing that the person, God, he's doing these out of a sense of his glory, his plan, his purpose, the things that he has chosen for us before the foundations of the world. 